So before we start, before I start to talk, <clears throat> what I'd like you to do is to close your eyes and however you hold your hands in meditation, use that position. And I'd like you to just spend um, a couple of minutes simply feeling the uh, sensations in your hands. So what I'd like you to do is to really pay attention to what's happening in the hands and put words in your mind to those sensations. So there may be heat or cool or hardness or pressure or vibration or temp whatever uh, sensations you're feeling there. So what I wanted to talk tonight about is um, the second factor of enlightenment. Some, some of you may have been here when we talked in uh, December about uh, doing a series over, over several months of uh, the seven factors of enlightenment. <clears throat> Does anybody remember that or just me? <laughs> Probably, oh, a few people remember. That's great. Um, so this is a, this is a teaching um, that I think is, is an important teaching because we tend to talk a lot about the Four Noble Truths, which is the, is the uh, basic teaching of the Buddha, the teaching that he first gave after his enlightenment um, that essentially set the context for his whole 45 years of teaching. In that talk, in that, in that teaching, he essentially said that there, are, um, that there is suffering, that there is a cause of suffering, in parentheses, the clinging mind, and that cessation of suffering is possible, and uh, that there is a path to the cessation of suffering. We tend to talk a lot about that in uh, Buddhist circles. And so sometimes it appears as if um, all we ever talk about is suffering, right? And some people complain about that. So um, we tend to get stuck a little bit on the first noble truth, which is there is suffering. And, and the reason that we do that is because sometimes in our search for pleasure, um, we employ many strategies that uh, deny, suppress, avoid uh, the suffering in our lives. And as a result, um, it gets suppressed into uh, the unconscious. And as we all know now, having had the benefit of Freud and Jung and all of those other psychologists, brilliant psychologists of the 20th century, that um, when we push things away into the, the unconscious or the subconscious, it's not as if they disappear. They still um, have a great deal of influence in our lives, and they still um, uh, tend to influence how we behave, how we think, how we react, how we relate, etc. So we spend a lot of time talking about the existence of sufferings to point to, point to it so that um, we include it in our lives, we see it in our lives, and by the understanding, establishing the understanding that it, it exists, we are then inspired to work to seeing its cause and to taking the path to its cessation. Nevertheless, and, and it's an incredibly important teaching, and it is the basic teaching of, of, of Buddhism, of Dharma, nevertheless, um, there are other teachings which uh, explicate and expand on that teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And this teaching of the Seven Factors of Awakening is one of those teachings. 
because it essentially talks about um, the states of mind that uh, assist or that support the third noble truth, the realization of the third noble truth, which is the cessation of suffering. So what could be better, right? Is that the idea that, uh, or the understanding that suffering can end and that there are um, factors of mind that can support that cessation of suffering. So the teachings are that there are, there are seven of these factors of awakening and they are mindfulness, investigation, energy or effort, rapture or joy, uh, calm, concentration, and equanimity. And in December, we talked about mindfulness. So tonight, I wanted to talk about um, investigation. Now, just to back up a, a bit, there, the mindfulness is the, uh, what we call the mediating factor in these seven factors. And um, investigation, energy, and rapture are the three energizing factors and uh, calm, concentration, and equanimity are the three stabilizing factors. So uh, we'll get to rapture, we'll get to energy and rapture in the next few months. Um, so that's an incentive to bring you back, right? Um, but tonight I wanna talk about, um, I wanna talk about investigation, which is an incredibly important aspect of practice and an incredibly important partner uh, to mindfulness. We talk a lot about mindfulness. We give mindfulness instructions. Um, we talk about uh, cultivating mindfulness in our daily lives. We talk about cultivating um, uh, minds that are filled with awareness and presence. And um, we tend to talk about investigation a little bit, but not very much. So tonight I wanted to dedicate, to, to devote this night to, to investigation because I think it can be helpful in a couple of ways. One is it's, it's helpful um, when you're sitting on your cushion and uh, you feel as if there is uh, some mindfulness that's been cultivated and, and uh, that's, that's being strengthened and practiced. And yet there's a quality of um, superficiality to that mindfulness where you're sort of there and it's kind of pleasant and it's kind of nice, but not much is happening, right? And I've been there many times myself, so I know that that's true for all of us. And so investigation is a way in which we can deepen the, uh, that aspect of meditation, we, a way in which we can um, uh, put some, some depth and some profundity into our practice on the cushion. It is also incredibly useful for daily life. Now, one of the things that, um, that, we, that we know is that about Dharma and the teaching of Dharma is that the, when the Buddha taught, he taught mostly to his monks. He had a, a band of monks that he lived in the forests with, and most of the, uh, the discourses, the sutras that we, that we have, the suttas that we have, are, it, they start with o bhikkhus, which means o monks. But there were teachings um, often, as he wandered about um, northern India, there were teachings to, uh, to lay people. And so uh, those teachings, uh, I find, are more um, apposite or more um, applicable to the lives that we lead. Uh, most of us are householders, and so we have partners and possibly children and jobs and ways that we need to... Um, uh, work in order to to uh, to support ourselves so that we have a home and uh, and 
something to eat and clothes to wear and the necessities of uh, this modern life and, and ways to educate our children and to support our aging parents, etc., etc. So we live incredibly busy lives. And so m more and more as I have, um, as I've been teaching, I've felt it uh, necessary to really turn to the understanding of what it means to practice in a life that is full of these concerns. Uh, my practice in the beginning was a practice that was mostly devoted to, um, to very long-term uh, retreats. And uh, so I would spend several weeks or months um, here and in Asia, uh, either at a monastery or at a retreat center, in silence for you know all of that time, except for very short periods, occasionally speaking to a teacher. And then I'd come back out, and I would have had profound experiences in getting the mind and the body really still, and yet um, coming back out into into uh, you know my diurnal life would would be something of a shock, and as I would come back out from from retreat, I would find that it would take uh, quite a while to um, to settle back into daily life and to be able to relate to people in a you know in a in a normal way, etc. And there was always a struggle of how to take that precious time, that precious practice that had been cultivated and developed, how to take that practice and really apply it um, uh, significantly and um, devotedly and um, effectively to a life that was filled with um, a husband and children and uh, uh, a, a responsible job and relationships and, and a, an aging mother and all of those things. And so I've, I've spent a, a lot of time thinking about how to, um, how to take these precious teachings into, um, uh, what do they call, uh, what do they say, kick the tires, right? To actually take it into daily life in such a way that it... Um, it, that we can be mindful when we're talking to our children. We can be mindful when our boss is yelling at us. We can be mindful when the vicissitudes of life, as they say, gain and loss, pain and um, pleasure, um, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, come and go. Uh, and how to, uh, to, to not have the spiritual life, the life that's, that's the internal life that we develop on a cushion be so divorced and, and apart from that uh, those householder concerns that neither one influences the other. How to be uh, kind, how to be compassionate, how to be equanimous in, uh, in a life where we're constantly being knocked off of our balance by the way uh, things um, unfold. So that's a that's a very long way of saying that um, one of the one of the um, developing uh, um, theories that I have is that this this factor of enlightenment, this factor of awakening that the Buddha talked about of investigation, is a wonderful bridge into for taking um, the practice of mindfulness, the practice of meditation into daily life. So that's why I want to, that's why I want to spend some time tonight, um, not just because it's on the list of the seven factors of awakening, but to actually spend some time tonight um, talking about it and, and seeing if my theory um, is even close, right? may not be. So, this is from Rumi. He says, intellect is good and desirable to the extent it brings you to the king's door. 
once you, once you have reached his door, then divorce the intellect. From this time on, the intellect will be to your loss and a brigand, a thief. When you reach him, entrust yourself to him. You have no business with the how and the wherefore. Know that the intellect's cleverness all belongs to the vestibule. Even if it possesses the knowledge of Plato, it is still outside of the palace. So how does that have anything to do with investigation, right? Well, I, I, I quote you that poem because usually when we talk about investigation, we think of investigation as activity of the mind, right? That we're going to investigate what's happening or we're going to investigate some idea or theory that we have. And the way that we do that is we sit and like um, Rodin's thinker, we kind of you know, do one of those and, you know, eventually, somehow, we will come up with the idea or the answer or the analysis that will bring us some wisdom. It's a great relief to me that that is not how we um, attain wisdom in this tradition. That in these teachings, essentially, we, we attain wisdom not through the intellect, but through investigation. So this deeper level of investigation in meditation has absolutely nothing to do with thought, which you may be relieved or not to hear. It has to do with bringing a concentrated inner listening into our lives, into our moment-to-moment experiences. And that's why I asked you to look at um, the experience in your hands. And you might right now, as you're listening, just listen to the sounds that are arising outside. And listen as deeply as you possibly can. I hope what you noticed is that to investigate means to listen very, very deeply, not just with your ears, but with your whole body. That listening doesn't just as um, wisdom doesn't come from thought. Listening doesn't mean that we're simply using our ears as an organ to grasp whatever is arising to um, touch the, se- the sense door of the ear, but that our whole body starts to hear. Did any of you notice what it was like to feel that sound in your body? Joshua, what did you feel? Mm-hmm. 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 Thank you. I saw somebody else. You felt pounding in your head. So Joshua felt resonance in his body. And you, what's your name? Harris. Harris felt it in his, in his uh, chest. So usually what we, when we hear a sound like that, what happens is there's a thought about the sound, right? So there's a thought about, you know, I'm trying to listen here to this very sacred talk. Maybe you didn't say sacred. Maybe you just said to this, to this damn talk or something. And, you know, they're out there making a lot of noise, right? So usually what happens is an object hits one of our sense doors. There's contact and consciousness. And usually, instead of turning our attention to, the, to that object, what happens is a thought arises in the mind, usually a thought that has to do with a judgment about what's being experienced. And that thought is what we get engaged in. So this, this level of investigation that I'm addressing myself to tonight is really the level of investigation that uh, um, 
Joshua and Harris pointed to in their experience of hearing that sound. That as we turn our attention to whatever experiences are coming up in our lives, that it is absolutely possible to investigate them fully, to listen deeply, to taste fully, to see completely. When we think, to think 360 degrees, so that our experience, which always comes in through one or another of the six sense doors, and when we say six sense doors, we're talking about the five physical sense doors plus the sense door of the mind. The, and what we, what we, when we're listening or when we're investigating, we're listening deeply or seeing deeply whatever the sense door is that's involved without choosing sides. So when we, when we hear a, a sound that's unpleasant, usually we choose the side against it, right? So what we're talking about is when we're, that we can actually listen and listen deeply without choosing sides against it. Or if we were to hear a beautiful sound, I think it's beautiful. <sighs> Isn't that lovely? What a lovely bell. I wonder where they got it from. I wonder how much it costs. I'd like to have one of those at home. That'd be really nice. Wow, I could really, God, I could have a great meditation if I just had somebody ringing that bell all the time, right? So we're choosing si the side four. So instead of that, could you just listen and hear? Was it possible to just listen and hear without choosing a side? Sylvia? Was it hard? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. So um, I'm going to ring it again. And what I'd like you to do is to be very much aware, not so much of not taking sides, but be very much aware of what it's like to hear, to really, really hear and listen from the beginning of the sound as it arises and notice it as it disappears. So what was that like? Was that different, Seb? Mm -hmm. Thank you. So it was hard for her to not attach words to what she was experiencing. So she'd hear pulse or waves. She'd hear... The, she'd hear, and it would. She'd, her mind would comment, pulse, waves, etc. So you're probably trained in the noting. Phil. Because what we do when we are not investigating in the sense that I'm talking about investigation is we are assuming that we know how things are. And so we go straight from the sense experience to the assumption that we know this. It's like the siren. We know the siren, right? And from that, we, are able, we, we judge. So... It's a, it happens like that. It's not, a, it's, it's not a slow process. It happens really quickly in daily life, right? When we're sitting on a cushion, we're sitting here in a relatively silent atmosphere and not much activity is going on. It may be more possible 
to um, to to state to be still enough to hear. But when we're in daily life and people are talking to us and the phone's ringing and dinner has to get on the table and the kids have to get to school and all of that kind of stuff, it's it's much harder to notice the 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 habit momentum that we have of hearing sound or seeing sights or thinking thoughts or tasting tastes or um, feeling sensations and not jumping into, oh, I already know that, I can't stand it, or I already know that I love it, right? So my suggestion is that we start to train our minds to investigate rather than to assume. Because when we assume that we know what our experience is before we've even had that experience, what we do is we cut off the oxygen in our minds. Because, because, it's, because it's, it's the, uh, that, that basic mind that is not knowing that gives the mind the oxygen to, to investigate, to see, to understand in a way that's really clear. Sylvia. Curiosity. Beautiful. Yes. There's a hand back. Surrender? Did you say a surrender? Mm -hmm. So let me just, uh, so I just want to make, um, (laughs) so, you know, what begins to happen is a shift in our relationship to experience and to phenomena. And uh, that's what we want, right? Because, Because usually we come to, 
spiritual practice, whether it's this practice or any other kind of spiritual practice, we come to, to it because there is, there is something that we see that needs a shift in our lives. And it, of course it's going to be scary because, because we've been living with uh, a particular pattern, a particular momentum of the way in which we relate to life for a very long time. And when we ask ourselves to shift that momentum, it is like falling off of the edge. It is coming to an edge of, um, of who we think we are or who we think we know we are. And that can be a little bit um, scary or a little bit frightening because it's, it's jumping into the unknown, essentially. So, you know, I was talking about uh, the, the seven factors of awakening. When we, when we talk about energy or effort, the Pali word for it is virya, V-I-R-I-Y-A. And what that literally means is courageous effort. Virya, I think those of you who've taken yoga know that, you know, there's a, you know, that that usually signifies the warrior. So, um, so our, our practice is not a practice for wimps, right? Because it's, it's a practice that, that asks us to move away from our, our habitual karma, our, our uh, habitual way of, of acting, and to move into a new way, which we, which, you know, when we're in the middle, when we haven't left the old way yet completely and we've not gotten to the new, new way yet completely, it can feel like an abyss. And so, um, you know, it's, so, so we, we build up our tolerance to that abyss. And, and we do it in a, um, in a kind way. You know, one of, the, one of the effects of thinking that we know what is true or that we know everything we need to know about any one particular phenomenon is hard-heartedness, right? We become very hard-hearted when we think we know. And so investigation is a kind of soft openness to the way things are. If we're hard-hearted about uh, meeting our experience, then again, the oxygen gets cut off. There's nothing that um, uh, we can't meet our experience with any level of integrity or authenticity because we meet it with something way from the past. If we think we know who we are, we are only uh, having that opinion based on the past. We can't possibly know who we are in the present moment. And we can't possibly know who we will be in the future. So the idea that we know who we are is something from way from our, 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 our distant past, right? So, and, and we tend to hold, hold that and cling to that. And, you know, so we're back to the second noble truth. The cause of suffering is clinging, is the clinging mind. So that mind that clings to an idea that we know how the world is or who we are or who our partner is or who our child is or who our parent is or who our boss is or our employee is, is something based totally on what is past, not what is here now. So when we're doing that, we're not living our lives because all that's possible is the present moment. That is the only potential we have, is the present moment. Thank you. So this investigation is promoting an interest in life. Um, and it's, and it's, as I said, it's not harsh, it's soft, and it's wanting to know about all aspects of life, not just a narrow um, view, but 
wanting to know clearly and directly for ourselves. And it's not based on any ideas that we may have picked up along the way or any ideas that anybody else has. But you know, one of the um, one of the, the the invitations that the Buddha always made when he gave a teaching is in Pali, it's called ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. And as I've as I've um, deepened in my own practice, I have appreciated that invitation more and more and more and more and more, because as from Rumi's poem that it's not the intellect, the idea that we could know anything by the intellect is hubris. It's, it's, it's totally ridiculous that we think that we could look at any object or, or any experience and know it simply by cutting the, the body off from the mind and using only the mind to understand it. So, our, so the invitation is, to know your own experience so fully that your, your, your understanding of life comes from a, um, a somatic felt sense of what your life is and what it's about. So we're doing something quite radical. We're saying, I want to find out everything, I want to find out about everything in life because my life completely depends upon it. Because if I'm not uh, looking deeply into phenomena and into experience and into who I am in every single moment, then I'm not living my life fully. One of my teachers, Ajahn Sumedho, talks about investigation as affectionate curiosity. And I, so I, I like what you were saying, Sylvia, about it being a curiosity, about the very nature of life. And it's, um, it, it puts me in, in memory of um, children and the way they approach life, right? Do you remember what it was like to be a child and to actually be that close to your Buddha nature that everything was fascinating. That nothing was, oh, just that old hat, or just that old sofa, or just that old person. But everything was new. I, I was at a museum the other day, and I, um, I was watching people walking around, looking at these amazing paintings. And there was something in the air, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And I kept looking and looking and looking. And I started looking at people's faces, and it was amazing. It was boredom. <laughs> and there was this, somebody had brought this little child, he must have been about five years old, and he had found himself some steps, right? And he was going up and down those steps, up and down those steps. And he was so interested in what this was all about. These, him and these steps were so they were at one. He was going up the steps, feeling what his body was feeling like at the steps, coming down the steps, feeling what his body was feeling, what it was like to be off balance, feeling what it was like to be in balance. He was totally interested. And all of the adults were walking around looking at these million, multi-million dollar paintings. <gasps> okay, did you see the, uh, over there? Oh yeah, that's great. Yeah, I really like that. Okay, can we go now? Is it is it lunchtime yet? You know. Oh, that's such a nice painting. Yeah, I remember that from the last time. Yeah, I already saw that one. Let's go. Let's go up to the you know fifth floor, right? So that quality of affectionate curiosity is what we can have in our daily life. And that, so we bring, so the attention, the mindfulness brings attention to the present moment. And the investigation allows us to see deeply and clearly. The, uh, the, the word for um, investigation in, in these teachings is, is 
Dhamma Vichaya. It, it, it means investigation of dhammas. But the, the synonym for that is also insight. And so in a way, the word that they, that, that's used, vichaya, has both the meanings of dhamma, of, of investigation and insight at the same time. So that in a way, it's almost not possible to have, to, to have investigation without insight. And it's said also that insight is, the, uh, is, is what is the occasion for investigation. So as you look at something and there is an insight into it, that propels you into a further investigation of what is really here. So we are constantly um, moving through seeing into the nature of things and through that seeing into the nature of things, being invited by that insight into investigating further into what the nature of things is. So what we begin to see is that the, regardless of our personal stories and our personal histories and our personal relationships to these phenomena and experiences that are also coming and going, is that everything is changing all the time. That nothing is staying the same. And so, of course, if we understand that deeply, if we understand what we call the insight into a Nietzsche or impermanence, if, if that arises, we begin to understand that nothing that, we're, that, that is arising has necessarily arisen before, nor will arise again. And so every moment becomes precious. So everything that appears also disappears. And that which is um, thought to be solid with further investigation turns out to be just energy. And we begin to learn that no thought, emotion, sight, sound, smell, or physical sensation can possibly bring lasting contentment. And we find great peace in letting go of the hope that something will. This morning I was, I was telling Nakoe, she was driving me here tonight, I was telling her that in my sitting this morning, as I was sitting and trying to be with my breath and with present moment experience, this issue that I have with a friend came up. And the mind just took off with it, right? It had every solution to this problem that you could possibly imagine. What was peculiar about it is that, you know, there was absolutely nothing new, right? It was all the same old solutions I'd had, you know, before. There was no insight. There was nothing going on but just this blah, 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 blah. And then you could tell him blah, 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 blah. And then you could write an email that says blah, 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 blah. Oh, but no, maybe you don't want to do that. Maybe you want to do this. Maybe you want to do that. Oh, well, how about if you tell him this? Well, you know, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. And suddenly, I remembered, oh, I can just, I can just be with these thoughts that are arising. I don't have to get caught by them, right? I don't have to um, just let the mind run. And so I simply just turned the attention to the mind and I thought, well, why can't you just let this go? And the mind said, okay. <laughs> now it was half an hour of sitting there, you know, blah, 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 blah. And the relief that came, just turning the attention to what it felt like to just let go of that, um, obsessing and that kind of mind that doesn't, you know, that's like a dog with a bone that <laughs> thinks that it already knows what the solution is, that thinks that it already knows how to deal with this, that thinks that it already knows what the situation is. The thought of simply letting that go, the whole body just relaxed. And as soon as I was able to let it go, 
and simply turned the attention to what had just happened, the whole solution ar arose. It just, it just presented itself. And so right in that moment, there was investigation and there was insight and there was the ability to see clearly when everything before had been an assumption by the mind that it knew what to do because it already knew the situation. So we find great hope in letting go of the idea, great peace in letting go of the hope that something, um, of finding something that will produce lasting contentment. So without investigation, we tend to um, be drawn by what we think is pleasant. And uh, you know, so we, we seek out that kind of stimulus, stimuli that are going to be constantly um, making things pleasant for us. And we normally pull away from what appears to be unpleasant or frightening. And we don't pay much attention at all to what is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So I'd like to ask how it was when I asked you to pay attention to your hands. What did you notice? What did you discover? Then you felt, uh-huh. And could you pay attention? Could you, could you pay attention enough to see what thoughts were coming up? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great, wonderful. Thank you. Anyone else? Yeah. Uh-huh. I love it. Doing, so. I love it. <laughs> so my mind just went right off there, and then I just fell apart. I said, "Sir, just bring it to the So, so this is wonderful because what? Because essentially, usually, you know, the tingling in the hands is a pretty neutral experience, right? Some people find it quite pleasant, but other people find it, it's you know, not much happening. It's just your hands tingling, you know. And so. Usually what we do is we're not only seeking the pleasant and pulling away from the unpleasant, but we're completely ignoring the, um, the neutral. So just if you, if, you re if, you, if you look at those three actions, the, the pulling towards us of what's pleasant and the pushing away of what's unpleasant and the ignoring of uh, the neutral, what you'll realize is that we're constantly in struggle with our experience. So that we're doing usually the very opposite of investigation. We are already thinking that, you know, if your attention is directed to your hands, you went to exactly what you know about your hands already, right? And, and it's, but, and it, but it's not you. It's, this is not a personal thing. This is the way we operate as human beings. And that's the wonderful thing about practicing Dharma, is that we not only understand, we not only get to understand ourselves more deeply, but we get to understand what it means to be human. Right? So that, and, and what I've found in my own practice is that beginning to understand what it means uh, to be human means that I can become more and more honest with myself about what is happening. So that it becomes more, more and more um, possible to investigate deeply 
my own experience because there is nothing that needs to be suppressed. There is nothing that needs to be avoided. There is nothing that needs to be denied. There is nothing that needs to be pushed away. There is uh, that, that being human doesn't, doesn't have to have shame attached to it. That being human doesn't mean that I've failed. That being human is a perfectly reasonable thing to be. And, and so in understanding that, I know that for myself, my practice has allowed me to become much more honest and much more open in a completely affectionate and humorous way with my peccadilloes and uh, with all of the areas of um, improvement that are possible. As you know, Suzuki Roshi said to his students, you're all perfect exactly as you are, and you could use some improvement. <laughs> so you, so it's, it's, that's the situation we're in, right? That we are perfectly human. And yet, because we understand we're perfectly human, it's possible for us to turn our attention deeply to um, how we are in this, in this, in this um, world and to begin to work um, to understand it in a way that it, uh, it opens up our potential. And so I have to close in a moment, but the, the last thing that I'd like to say about investigation is um, that we've investigated investigation just this much tonight. And that, I, and that I'd, I'd like to invite you in the next month to really uh, begin to see if, you can see if you can begin to understand what it means to investigate your experience deeply. That, um, and investigation not only means investigating our experience, but also as in the um, the, the discourse that the Buddha gave on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which was the teachings on mindfulness meditation, what he invited was that we look not only internally, but that we also look externally. So that we are not just observing what is happening in this mind-body. And of course, we're looking at the mind. We're looking, I'm sorry, at the body. We're looking at our feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, and how we respond to those. And we're also looking at, and, and the responses of those is usually judgment, liking, disliking, pulling to and pushing away from, and the mind and how the mind works. And then we're also investigating all dharmas. What that means is that we're investigating everything in our world. So we're investigating ourselves, this mind and body as it is here. We're investigating ourselves in relation to all of the minds and bodies out there because we're not disconnected from them. And we're also observing them and how they are. And we are also investigating how it feels when certain, um, certain uh, responses from the external world lands in our experience. And hoping that when we investigate that and we see that deeply, it will shape the way we respond to our world. Because how we are in the world is just as important as how we are with ourselves. Because we are not disconnected from the net of life. We are completely connected. And, every, and you, you understand that a net, wherever you touch a web, wherever you touch it, it shakes all over. So what, however we respond, to our fellow human beings, to our fellow creatures, to our environment that shapes the environment itself. And so we start to look deeply, more and more and more deeply into our experience, into phenomena, how they are arising and passing away, into the way we are in the world, and into the way we relate to the world and the world relates to us. And in that deep investigation with no assumptions that we know how things are, but with a child's curiosity of what is this? What is this? I think I told you the story of, um, and I'll close with this, of a, uh, at the end of a three-month retreat that I 
did, I sat at um, Insight Meditation Society in Bari. Um, a wonderful Zen priest came to talk to us. They always have speakers at the end of the retreat to kind of help you transition into um, back into your daily life. And he, 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 you know, we had spent three months in silence, sitting and walking, sitting and walking, sitting and walking, sitting and walking. And he came to talk to us and inspire us. And he came in his beautiful Zen robes. And I think his name was Seven Mountains, was the translation of his Japanese name. He was beautiful. And he came and he sat in a very dignified way on the dais. And he looked out at us and he said, you think sitting and walking is it? Not. <laughs> you ask, what is this? What is this? That bring you enlightenment. Sitting and walking, not. Three months. So this teaching on investigation is a really important teaching and I hope that you investigate it further and that um, as you look more and more and more deeply you will see the beauty of your potential and you will see the beauty of um, seeing from moment to moment to moment that life is a flow, it's like a flow of water and that trying to freeze it is what brings suffering. Allowing the flow to continue and to, to be with the flow of life and to, to know it deeply, to understand it deeply from the innocence of affectionate curiosity uh, will bring you deep happiness for, and that is what I wish for you deep happiness. Thank you for your attention. Are there other questions? We have a few minutes. Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, so, you know, when we talk, could you not leave quite so, it, we'll be finished in a couple of minutes. It really would be wonderful. If, you're, if you've already gotten up, that's fine. But if, if you would just please wait for a few minutes, we're going to be finished in a couple of minutes. So we don't need to anticipate. Um, yeah, so what we're, what we're working with all of the time is, uh, you know, the basic teaching of suffering and the end of suffering, right? So let's start, let's start basically right there. What usually, uh, the, the culmination of this practice usually leads to um, some degree of equanimity, right? And when I talk about equanimity, I, you know, I just, I just want to make sure that we don't translate equanimity as indifference or as apathy. That equanimity is a real evenness or balance or a large perspective in the face of the vicissitudes of life. That equanimity allows us um, to be present, to be, to be completely present now for what's happening in this moment. And that's a very generalized kind of statement about what we're doing here. It doesn't mean that we're checking our common sense at the door. And it doesn't mean that we're not um, spending a, a, a certain amount of time anticipating what may be appropriate. But what we are doing in, equi in equanimity is trusting that because we have a, a, a heart and mind and body that is aligned with this present moment, that our responses will be completely appropriate in this present moment. 
We can anticipate all we want, how we're going to be when we get to the office or when we you know, go to that dinner or when we go see that movie or when we talk to this friend of mine that's annoyed me, right? <laughs> right? We can anticipate that all we want, but what we need to understand with some wisdom is that in the moment when I meet that friend, how his body language is, how he responds to me, how he says good morning to me, how I say good morning to him, what my mood is, what my husband said to me that morning, what the weather is like, where we're meeting, is it a chance meeting, is it a planned meeting? There will be a thousand causes and conditions that will bring that moment and all of the conditions of that moment. And if I have anticipated and planned my response to him, it will be inappropriate. Because it will not be taking into account all of the causes and conditions that will be adhering to that moment. So I may want to get really well dressed and look really good, you know, and make sure that everything's like, you know, in order when I have this meeting, right? But a gust of wind could come along and blow my hair <laughs> apart. You know, then what am I going to do, right? So, so I'm I'm being a little bit lighthearted about it, but it's it's also serious that you know, that we we can never ever you know there's this illusion that we're going to control everything, right? So we've you know so we have a heavy coat because we anticipated cold, and then you know the weather turned beautiful on us. Damn, you know, and I really love that heavy coat, right? I wanted to wear it. So, but, so, so the question is, how appropriate are we? It's that re to me, if I really want to be simple about my practice, I want to be appropriate in every single moment. That's as simply as I can possibly state it, that in every moment that I meet each person completely appropriately, that I meet myself completely appropriately. And it's appropriate to, to who I am in this moment and to all of the conditions in which I find myself in this moment. Right? So anticipation's fine. It, there's nothing wrong with it. But hopefully we can hold it lightly <coughs> with some wisdom that we don't know. We have, I've, I have adopted a a policy with my husband that every time I say goodbye, I think it might be the last time that I see him. So I make sure that I don't ever part with a mean word. Right? Now, because I don't know. I don't know what will happen to me. I don't know what will happen to him. So that's, to me, appropriate because it's filled with the wisdom of the uncertainty of this life. And so if I'm constantly anticipating because I think I know or I think I can control what's going to happen, then my responses are always going to be inappropriate. Even if they appear to be appropriate, they're always going to be inappropriate. So... So um, thank you for your attention tonight. And uh, we always end with a dedication of merit. And the dedication of merit is to, um, we, we contend that we generate much merit when we practice and when we listen to the Dharma, when we think about the Dharma, when we reflect on it, and when we practice. And we join together the merit of our practice with the merit of the practice of all of the practitioners who have gone before us. And we take that merit and we dedicate it, we give it away. We dedicate it to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being, and the awakening of all beings everywhere without exception. With the deep wish that all beings be happy and peaceful, safe and protected from harm, healthy and strong of body, 
that they take care of themselves happily, live with ease, be free from suffering and the causes of suffering, and have happiness and the causes of happiness. It's an appropriate time to dedicate the merit of your practice to those loved ones that may have passed away, and if you want to say their names now, that would be fine. Macy. Thank you so much for Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.